0: Hey everyone welcome to another episode of fast talk i'm chris case here with coach trevor connor this is your source for the science of endurance performance this is our favorite moments of 2021. trevor i started going through the last year of episodes and i can't say that there was a overriding theme to the episode or the moments that i chose but Going through these again, looking at this list here, there are some really big names on the list of people that we spoke to in 2021. That's not uncommon for us, but the the names that we had, the Olympic champions, the very prominent researchers and scientists we had on the show, yeah, something to be proud of, I think. And, And I'm happy that we were able to bring this type of information and this type of expertise to our listeners.
1: Yeah, no, there's, for me at least, some really exciting episodes this year where we covered, I think, some some hot topics. We had some big names who we haven't had on the show before. You know, as I was going through this and trying to pick which clips I wanted for the, the end of the year, unlike last year, where I was just like, you know, what were the clips that were fun? What were the clips that were entertaining? I found that I, w- I was really leaning into some episodes where we talked about things that, for myself as a, a cyclist, as a coach, as a physiologist, we talked about things that had had a big impact on my career at one stage or another, you know, right from bringing in my first mentor to talk with us. So there was a bit of a kind of a personal side to this with the clips.
0: Very good. Hey listeners, we're pleased to announce the release of our eighth Pathway. Our newest pathway is focused on exercise in the cold. Just in time for the chill of winter exercise, members of Fast Talk Labs can explore the best ways to train in cold weather and how colder temps affect our performance. The exercise in the cold pathway features Dr. Stephen Chung, one of the world's leading environmental physiologists, as well as Dr. Inigo San Milan, our Canadian CEO and coach Trevor Connor, and Dr. Andy Pruitt. Winter training isn't as simple as just adding another layer. Follow our exercise in the cold pathway to learn more. Let's dive into our first clip today, and that is from episode 150, entitled, Are There Benefits to Carbohydrate Manipulation with Dr. Oscar Eukendrup. We chose a clip that um, has to do with metabolic flexibility, high-fat, low-carbohydrate diets. To me, and I know you're going to back me up on this, Trevor, it's really interesting. We went into this episode thinking, oh... Dr. Eukendrup is a, you know, kind of a fan, if you will, of this type of stuff. We've heard he has a reputation for pioneering in some ways when it comes to nutrition. What we ended up realizing is he was saying, eh, let's not jump there just yet. There's a lot of stuff that we still don't know about carbohydrate manipulation.
1: Yeah. I actually really like that when you talk with a researcher and they're not cut and dry, black and white. You know, Dr. Eukendrup is one of the researchers who's really been looking at this train high, sleep low approach to carbohydrate manipulation. He is big on carbohydrate manipulation. So when we came into the recording, I was somewhat expecting him to say, no, you have to do this. It's the best thing in the world. Everybody should be doing this. It's going to make you super fit. And really liked that instead of doing that, he came in and said, everybody's individual. Everybody's mm-hmm. got to do what's right for them. And no, there isn't enough research in this. So I'm not going to say unequivocally, this is the best thing for everybody.
0: And I think you'll hear a little bit of that in the, the clip we've chosen here. So let's check out Dr. Yukindrup now.
2: What is clear is that whatever diet you give to humans, they, they will adapt to it. Some diets you adapt very quickly. Some diets like a high-fat diet, it takes a little bit longer to, uh, to really adapt to it but ultimately you you will adapt to it and you will be able to do similar types of things with a completely different fuel mix that that's a fact now if we if we then uh, look at like performance then there are some things of physiology that do not change whether you're adapted or not if intensity is really high you need glycolysis there like that that is just physiology whether you can adapt for as many years as you like. Um, you're still, if the intensity is high enough, you're still going to need glycolysis. With high intensity exercise, you're still going to need carbohydrate as the, uh, as the main fuel. So, and this is why I think a di- any diet where that, that is the one solution for all problems doesn't exist. A high-carbohydrate diet is not a solution to all problems. Uh, a high-fat diet or a keto diet is not a solution to uh, to all problems. And I think if you want to train your carbohydrate and your fat metabolism, because I think I, I read a lot about the keto diet and metabolic flexibility, well, you're actually making your body very inflexible uh, because your body is becomes really good at using fat, really poor at using carbohydrate. Same thing that would happen if you, if you always were on a high carb diet, you become pretty inflexible. We, we said earlier, we, you become very dependent on carbohydrate. So the, the only way to stay sort of metabolically flexible is to give different challenges to the body at different times. And when it comes to training, we find this very normal. We find it very normal that we don't train the same every day. And we, we break up the, the training as much as we can. We give different stimuli. And I think we should do the same with, uh, with nutrition, not, uh, not every day the same. Some days high carb, some days low carb. And if you really want to get to the effects that, uh, that we are talking about here, I think you have to really push this to, uh, to extremes sometimes. Not every day, but sometimes. i no, actually really glad to hear you say that because you know,
1: I agree. I don't think for performance, a, a keto-type approach... Uh, in the long term is beneficial, but I, I also do think we, we went a little too far with the you know endurance athletes should be getting every carbohydrate they can possibly find in their system and you should be eating 700 grams per day. Um, I, I don't think that's necessarily <laughs> beneficial either.
2: No, no, it's not. Of course, it's, of, of the two methods, it's probably the lower risk method, that, that's, that's for sure. Um, but I still don't think that there is one diet that is, uh, that is suitable for all situations.
0: All right. The next clip we're going to hear is from episode 154, the art and science of time trials with Kristen Armstrong and Jim Miller, one of the most prolific, most decorated time trial and coach duos in, in the history of cycling. I think it's fair to say. This clip, Trevor, you chose, it is truly a statement and a testament to the mindset of a, a champion.
1: Yeah, this was one that I really enjoyed because this was just an, it meant to be an episode about time traveling. I, I thought it was just going to be, well, here's the training to do. Here's right. little techniques <laughs> for time traveling. And I'm thankful for this, not the direction that we went. I have always been fascinated by the mindset, the attitude, the approach of, of your true champions, your top champions. Which is unique. And I've actually sat down and wrote down what I I felt the characteristics are of of that sort of mindset. And listening to Kristen in this episode, I was like, that is the way a champion thinks. Mm -hmm. Like, you can just hear it. Not only does she have the time traveling and the fitness dialed in, she has that mindset side dialed in like I haven't seen in a while. (laughs) Yeah. And what was interesting is after the episode, we did get a response to, I think it was one or two people said they actually didn't like her attitude in the episode. Mm-hmm. And I, I heard it and there was a, you know, basically to be nice, they were kind of saying she was coming across as a bit of a jerk. Mm-hmm. And I listened to that and went, no, I actually don't see that. What What I'm seeing is that that mindset, which can be confused as being a jerk. Arrogant,
0: but it's focused. It's very focused, right. it's very deliberate, it's it's on task.
1: And look, I, I've struggled with this because there are plenty of people who, who cross that line who are top champions that are also actually kind of jerks. Mm-hmm. I don't think Kristen is. But I've wrestled with this for a bit earlier on in my coaching career going, if I'm gonna try to get athletes to the top level, do I have to tell them they gotta be a-holes? <laughs> And I didn't want that. You know, I want them to have character. And what I, where I landed with this is I saw there are three traits you absolutely must have to, to be a top champion. One is you have to have some genetics. Mm-hmm. Two is you have to suffer more pain, train harder, be more attentive to every detail than any other athlete out there. Talent's not enough.
0: Yeah, and it's very clear. Jim and Kristen pay attention to the details. Which was that
1: whole episode. Yeah, yeah. The third element, and this is where it gets mistaken with thinking they're a jerk. In the competition, you have to be willing to rip your components, lungs out with a spoon and feed them (laughs) to them.
0: That's weird, but yeah, I get what you're saying.
1: But that doesn't mean you have to take that off the bike. In competition, everybody understands. Everybody's here to win. And you have to have that mindset. But it doesn't mean that it has to be off the bike too.
0: There's an envelope of time, a couple days maybe even before that race starts where the the senses are heightened and they're in the mode, they're in the zone. And, and yeah, it can come across as unpleasant or just not nice to be around. And she admits that yep. in the episode, but that's what it took.
1: You know, look, my first ever... Pro race. One of my training friends was there. He was on a pro team, a big pro team, and their team was up at the, the front of the, the field setting the pace. And being new to the pro field and not getting that there's a pecking order here, I was like, oh, I'll go up to the front. So I go up, go alongside him and go, hey, how you doing? And he looks at me and goes, what the effort are you doing here? <laughs> Grabs me by the jersey pocket and throws me backwards. Mm-hmm. Couple days later, we're back training. He's my friend again. Yeah, but in the race, mm-hmm. that's the mindset, and it's a hard thing to reconcile and get. So I love this clip from Kristen because you see all those elements. Obviously, she's talented. You see that attention to every little detail, that willingness to hurt more than anybody else, willing mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. to go that step further than everybody else, and also that in the race. Don't mess with me. Yep. And that's a champion.
0: All right. Let's hear from uh, Kristen and Jim now.
3: For her, it wasn't just the time trial day. It was the time trial week. And from about seven days out into the time trial, she was absolutely unbearable to be around for everybody. You know, for me, I at least recognized that that was how she mentally prepared to go to this place. It hurts. It's uncomfortable. They call it endurance for a reason because you have to endure it. It took her Five, seven days to mentally prepare to do this. But then on the day, she could always go to that far, far, far edge of accepting the pain and and working through it. And it was never, you know, as much as she won, she won so much. It's unbelievable. It it never changed. It was always the same from the very first time to the very last time she raced a time trial. And that week was just going to be miserable for everybody.
1: In what
0: ways, uh, her,
3: Jim? Let's get just, some dirt just, on yeah.
1: Kristen. You get a chance to defend yourself here, Kristen.
3: <laughs> yeah, no, she can't. Her husband would even say on time trial week, she was mine. And then after the time trial day, <laughs> he would take her Okay, back. interesting.
4: Uh, <laughs> I remember there's a few time trials where I didn't win. And I would go back to, you know, we all have our team bands and team tents. I had teammates literally hide from me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, it, She's on a rampage.
4: I wasn't like a an athlete who, you know, would scream at my team or anything. Like that. It was very internal, but they were so scared and they had no idea what to say to me. And so to this day, I still have, you know, athletes that were to my teammates that they'll, they'll continually joke about, about that. Yeah. And, you know, I think that the preparation that Jim is speaking of is there is um, a mind preparation that you go through and it's not like I have it on my calendar and I say, Oh, Hey, yeah. On Monday, the 12th, I'm going to start my time trial mental preparation it's not that calculated. It just happens. And your mind goes in this funk, you go into this focus mode and it is unbearable. I mean, my husband and Jim were pretty much, you know, we think about when we hear, you know, people hiring psychologists, I'm like, my husband and Jim were my psychologists. I didn't need a psychologist. (laughs) They were given that gift from me because he had to deal with these crazy emotional swings. Um, But again, it was just on these big days preparing for that one event and, and figuring out how I was going to to nail it each time.
3: This was an interesting process. You could see other people be super relaxed and have a good time, laugh. But on time trial day, they would start getting that mindset or, or start zeroing in on what they had to do. But it was always funny because I would look at her competitors and see them start going through this on, on you know the day of. And, and when we would show up to the race on the day of, it was super simple. Show up, get changed get on the trainer, same warm up, straight to the start ramp, same discussion, basically, and then straight in the car and we did our thing. And literally, we had this feeling of on race day, all that preparation had come together and it was, the stress was over. Now it was just time to execute is where you can see on other people's faces that on race day, the stress showed up. So I think the, the process of getting yourself there mentally early was really a huge success factor in her career as uncomfortable it was for everybody around her and it was really you know she wasn't grumpy to to everybody it was really it was really her husband and myself but that goes with the territory right and it's, probably it's, the media yeah maybe <laughs> but if you're gonna if you're gonna play in this arena that that just that comes with the territory so you you have to manage and deal with it and you just know it's part of the process and it is what it is but then come race day you're it always paid off so
0: can you actually take us inside this process, Kristen? How did you practice this in training?
4: Again, there's so many unique pieces to how I trained versus textbook. You know, some of the questions that you all sent over and that I knew we were going to discuss today. It's interesting because those questions are some of the general population's questions. And, you know, if I were living in the same town as Jim, I'd probably have a cup of coffee with him right now. And we'd probably just shake our heads and be like, gosh, you know, every." everything that everyone does around time trailing in my brain is like, this is just so traditional. Like I had women send me their training and say, what's wrong with me? Can you look at my training? What am I doing wrong? I'm like everything. I mean, I'm not the total geeky, like physiology gal. I know my training. I know my, I know my physiology. I I major in exercise physiology. I can train people well. But at the end of the day, I think that there's a lot of what people think, and or how how people think they should do it. And there's so many people saying that this is how you should train for time trialing That everyone does it, right? This is how it happens. It's kind of like when we chose tires. Everyone's like, "Well, that's the fastest tire." I'm like, "No, it's not. Have you tested it, or did you read an article?" People will send me links all the time. Oh, look at this tire! It's like the fastest. I'm like. According to who? According to the person who made the tire? Or is it according to the third party that I had tested all the tires? This is kind of the level Jim and I took it to, is we didn't accept that some company came out and said, this is the fastest chain. We tested the change. We we tested the friction. Oh, and by the way, the tests were done by us, like third party. We hired other companies that weren't affiliated with these brands. Number one, most of my races that counted were between 30 and 40 minutes long in duration. When I did prep, when you talk about mental prep, how do you prepare for these? There's not a lot of time trials on the calendar to prepare for these. So we had a time trial that we did. It was mid-season to end of season and it was a local time trial. And I'll never forget the first time I showed up to it. I was in my head-to-toe race get-up. Like, I had my booties on. I had my time trial helmet on. I had my... Pre-race mix, I had my trainer, I had my skin suit, and people looked at me like I was crazy. They're like, oh, so what are you doing? Like the local world championships here today, Kristen? And I was like, every time trial is a world championship for me, and they're like, whoa, okay. Well, guess what? Three years later, everyone shows up in their their booties and their arrow helmet at this race.
0: All right, let's keep on this theme of sports psychology and mindset a bit. This next clip is from episode 158, entitled, How to Manage Unwanted Thoughts Through Stoicism. This was with Dr. Simon Marshall and Leslie Patterson. Trevor, he describes the brain in terms of having these two components, the chimp and the professor. And I think that, that resonates with you, that clicks with you.
1: Well, I, I love the stoic approach to sports psychology in general that just being highly directed and not letting a whole lot of distractions and other things lead you off course. So I love that conversation with him. But I think their description of this chimp brain, which tends to control us and causes our fear and makes us do crazy things, and the professor brain and how they interact and how the professor brain is actually kind of at a disadvantage is really fascinating. I still remember the first time I went to a presentation on it and going, that's pretty cool, that makes a lot of sense. So I think it's a great way to look at at sports psychology and how to approach races when you're feeling that fear and anxiety. And I think it's a good thing to share again. Excellent. Let's hear from
0: Simon now.
5: Yeah, I mean, it's a juicy topic and it's interesting is once you get behind the awkward Latin names of sort of brain anatomy, you actually find, you know, one of the world's best thriller novels, <laughs> right? So it's really fascinating how our brain has evolved. And, and certainly the metaphor that we use of this chimp and professor and, or just thinking about your having multiple kind of personalities in your, in your brain uh, is not certainly new. It's been around uh, for many, many years. Um, you might have heard, you know, the lizard brain or the elephant and the rider and so on. And, and it really stems back to some fairly a strong evolutionary biology of about if you think about how humans when we how have evolved over the millions of years um to cope with our increasingly complex environment and obviously before we were human we were in water we were water-based and um and so the environment there was very simple we used to really have a brain that was a stimulus response organ you know um i see things or i sense things and i react and there's really not much sort of emotional processing and then as we started to come on land and forage for food and and we had a different set of predators different parts of our brain developed but the part that's really been with us the longest well there's the one part that's been with us even longer than that called the uh, cerebellum but the main part that's been with us the longest is in terms of that more closely resembles and is functional today is called the limbic system it's about the size of a an avocado depending on how big your brain is or head is but uh, it sits right in the center of your head and the human brain is a bit like a tree if you cut it open so sort of laterally and you count the rings you count how old how old a tree is it's the human brain is very similar the part in the middle is the oldest and the part on the outside is the newest and the limbic system is really where all of our emotions are formed and created And emotions are fairly sort of like Fisher-Price tools that our human brain has to sort of, they're blunt instruments to nudge us in the ribs to to tell us to take action. And that's really what the purpose of human emotion is. I'd think, come on, human, you need to do something. Move away uh, or approach uh, are the two kind of basic things. And, and then it was given a whole bunch of sort of chemical weapons to ensure that we listen to those messages, even though that they were kind of crude messages. And so a number of things that happened with the limbic system, and one of those, these sort of endowed powers it has been given to make sure we always listen to it, because its first primarily goal first primary goal is to keep us alive it's a noble goal and we never want to get rid of that so and the the kind of the the powers that's been given neurochemical powers to make sure that we listen to it are really to keep us alive and so even some of the things that causes distress or destructive emotion uh in contemporary life are still at, at their heart survival mechanisms. so for one example is okay we have a fight or flight response as we all know that if you're being chased by a a woolly mammoth or a tiger or whatever a hunter back a predator back in the day to run as fast as you can or fight that's obviously the most simple version of it but there are other now more subtle mechanisms that still relate to survival so for example the human brain really is terrified and will crap the bed if it thinks it might either be humiliated, embarrassed, or shown to be inadequate, uh, especially in front of other people and we can all relate to those things we we you know the thought of getting up and doing karaoke or you know uh, having to do a presentation or something those are very modern but in, in in ancient times being ostracized if you if you weren't able to be provide a worth to a group or a tribe or a skill you couldn't hunt and gather and so on you were often ostracized and so you were really probably doomed to have a life a solitary life that would end in probably a probably a pretty grim death and so some of these mechanisms are still in place. And so the two main ones that the limbic system still has, that it's five times quicker, it processes sensory information five times quicker than the rest of our brain. So what does that actually mean? Well, we all know of our main senses, right? Our touch and our sight and hearing and so on. We've got internal senses as well. We are called interoceptive senses like hunger pangs and so on. But those senses are processed by our limbic system at lightning speed a far quicker than you're able to realize what's happening and a good example of this is the startle reflex if you've ever been swimming and something in the ocean and something brushes up against your leg you haven't had a chance you'll you know have this like you know get away or you'll you'll recoil you have not had a chance to think oh there could be something dangerous here i think that's what it could be i better get out of the way this is happening in milliseconds so this is an example of this lightning speed your limbic system has to process and then sends a whole set of signals chemical and electrical signals to fear centers like almost like satellite dishes that sit that scan the skies or environment for incoming threats and that sets off a cascade of hormonal responses and neurotransmitter responses to get us ready right we know heart rate goes up blood pressure goes up you might have butterflies and so on And there are some physical, uh, psychological sensations as well, like worry and rumination and self-doubt. And so they happen fairly quickly. So by the time our our, our frontal cortex, our wrinkly, smart brain at the front has had a chance to catch up and think about it rationally, that train has already left the station, right? uh, We've got our adrenal glands are firing and, and so on. We've got adrenaline and noradrenaline firing. And so those are the things that happen very quickly. And then to add sort of insult to injury about this, the second thing that this limbic system has, this endowed chemical power, is that the moment those threat detection centres are are, are lit up, um, it also throws a chemical brick at the part of our brain, the frontal cortex, what we call the professor brain, so that it can't rationalise its way out of a life and death situation. About 30 neurotransmitters are are released and they go into our frontal cortex. This is a gross simplification of the science of course, but and and, and then sort of not paralyze but kind of slow down the processing. So the the, the the Jedi skills that we do have, facts and logic, which is the Jedi skills of our professor brain, are, are rendered largely ineffective or they're just not very good. It's very and we all know this if when you're really nervous or tense, it's hard to sort of think your way, to think clearly or to make good decisions under pressure. So you're the victim of that that brain physiology and again we often get annoyed and angry at this process why can't I think this and why am I so biased and why do I choke or make mess up or why do I just need to pee and poop five times the morning of a race or so on but all of those mechanisms are designed to keep you alive so they're good and so one of the strategies is a reframing of what that stuff means
1: Okay, so Chris, this next one is from episode 163 Training Principles from the 1980s are still all you need with Jeff. Winkler. So this was a clip that you picked and I know this was an episode you had been excited about for a long time, so why don't you tell us why you picked this one?
0: Yeah, I mean the title's a bit of a tongue-in-cheek we were debating, we actually kind of accumulated points for the different decades that we were talking about, the 80s the 90s, the, the 2000s close to the end of the episode where we're kind of wrapping things up and he's really giving that breakdown of, you know, these are the things I love about the 80s and I kind of wish they still existed, but you know, there's things about modern training principles and modern training practices that I really like too. And he's kind of going between the two worlds. Of course, I'm a simple guy and I, I like simple things and I'm not a much of a, a data hound. So this spoke to me quite a bit. And uh, yeah, I think it was a fun episode that uh, we had been talking about for quite a while. So let's check out what Jeff has to say.
6: Well, I suppose I'd like to just say that like you can't write off the old school. I mean, the old school has some uh, valuable contributions to the training process. And of course, I, I, you know, it was interesting when I, when I came back to coaching with the existence of all of these tools and techniques and systems for analysis, I had kind of a harsh reaction initially. I immediately saw, oh, the value of the feedback is great you know, to put, be able to put a number with power. But some of the analysis that has arisen out of having all of this data, my, my first reaction was, this is like, it seems like a bit of false precision that we don't fully understand the systems that, that are operating. And so while we are measuring them we may still not really be to the end point, right? You know, we're early days in terms of understanding the physiological systems and then linking them to the tools that we measure. And so I think the challenge is not to get lost in this precision and data and analysis because it's not 100% accurate. And it's actually hard. It just creates new questions, which maybe it is not moving us always forward, right? Where we maybe were mired with a lack of information. Now we're mired too much or a tendency to focus on things that may not really be that productive to focus on. Um, I think that probably in another 40 years, it's going to be a different story. And I think that's going to be big data as a result of big data and machine learning and what have you. I think that's probably where we'll start to really understand the trends and the underlying data that it's very hard for us to parse out right now.
0: It it sounds like what you're saying is if we took a step back from where we're we're sitting and looked at the, the playing field that we're in right now, we are... A little bit lost in the forest. There's so much information, so much data to be used. We just aren't exactly sure yet how to use it best. And in some ways, what we're collecting is not as accurate, if you want to use that word, as it could be. And in 40 years, we'll see drastic changes. It might be in 10 years, we'll see drastic changes in the improvements of data analytics uh, far surpasses where we're at right now.
6: I think that that's at least partially true, that we're struggling to extract meaning out of the data and the tools that we have. We're certainly successful at certain levels, but I often feel as if We're looking and we certainly are seeking precision. Like we want to link uh, what we see on the sensors to an underlying condition and then sort of change how those things interrelate and do a better job of training and and developing fitness. But anyone who spends time reading studies on on exercise science, you're going to be left with this idea of we don't know what we're doing, right? Because we get conflicting results a lot of the time. And and it's because of the details. We don't fully understand the black box. I mean, or there's at least a certain aspect of black box to things still mm-hmm. uh, with the body. But that doesn't mean the tools aren't useful. You just have to just don't think they're going to answer all the questions. But they do do a very good job of answering some questions.
1: Listeners, Chris and I are excited about an upcoming milestone here at Fast Talk. On January 27th, we will release our 200th Fast Talk episode. We're proud to have brought you 200 episodes featuring the world's most respected and influential experts in training, physiology, sports nutrition, bike fit, recovery, sports medicine, plus some bad jokes about Canada. So we have a very special 200th episode planned for you, and we'd like you to be a part of it. Record your best questions on your smartphone recorder app and email them to info at fasttalklabs.com by January 1st. Any topic is fair game, but we are especially excited to hear your questions about the future of endurance sports. So again, record your questions and send them to info at fasttalklabs.com. Okay, so this next one is episode 166, Effective Two-A-Day Workout Strategies with Neil Henderson. So I'll admit, even though I have kind of that obsession with the long ride versus two-a-days and love getting Neil in on the show, you picked this clip. Well, you know, I think in
0: different ways for a long time, we've fielded questions from people. Can I skip the first three hours of my five-hour ride? You know, stuff like that. It's become a bit of a running joke with us. But this episode was really fun for me because it was one of those where a coach was putting into practice Successfully with athletes, something that science hadn't totally caught up with yet. And I think it's starting to, but it really hasn't fully confirmed what coaches have been seeing. I think the other part of this that speaks to me is the fact that I often commute. And, you know, that might not be the first thing you think of when you think of two day workout strategies, but you can effectively use your time morning and evening if you commute to work effectively, that that's a great way to implement some of this into your training. And so it was great to hear Neil, a really successful coach, a high level coach, talk about that using two-a-days effectively with elite athletes, but also with some of the other masters athletes that he works with when it comes to using commutes as, a, as part of that two-a-day strategy. So that was fun for me.
1: Great, well, let's hear it as I say.
7: In my opinion and experience, I would say that there is absolute clear advantages to incorporating two-a-day sessions into your training and in some cases doing it, one, to substitute for a single long training session and secondary primary reason to do that to be able to create a greater stimulus for training with performing a high intensity session in the morning and then a lower intensity training session in the afternoon. Those are the the two ways that I would do that and recommend folks do that, whether you're an amateur rider or a world tour pro. Trevor,
0: what have you seen both in yourself and maybe some athletes you've coached?
1: So I am going to start with the bitter pill that I don't want to swallow. And then I'll finish it up with a little bit of defense of the long ride. But if I am reading this science right, and I'm very excited about the science, I'm going to keep reading it. I just gave an explanation of how these two-a-days can produce a lot of the gains that you get from long rides and actually hyperactivate this whole pathway. There's potentially a lot of good gains from these two-a-days. The other thing I'm to add to that, you go back to that, that Larson review where he talked about the science behind the short high intensity versus the, the long ride, where he concluded his review was to say that long, slow hits this calcium, calcium urine pathway. Uh, high intensity, as I remember, hits the AMPK pathway. And he basically said, if all you're ever doing is hitting one of those pathways, you're going to be limited you really have to hit both. And so he actually made the argument for a polarized approach to training because of that. If you do the two days the way that Neil just described, you're getting that high intensity in the first workout. So you're hitting that AMPK pathway. But in that second low intensity workout, you're hitting more that calcium comodulin, urine pathway. So you're getting the sort of gains that you would get from a long ride. Plus, like I said, you're kind of supercharging it. So here's a way of actually hitting both pathways in the same day. So if I'm reading the signs right, if that's correct, there's a real benefit to this. So yeah, I'm trying to swallow this pill. The one thing I will say in defense is, Larson brought this up as well, high-intensity work causes autonomic stress, and too much autonomic stress is what leads to overtraining. If you are constantly repacing your long rides with two-a-days, you run that risk of of really fatiguing yourself. So I think my answer would be, I think it would be good to, to periodically replace a long ride with this. I would not be doing it all the time.
0: Yeah, I think that there's certain situations here. For example, what Neil started the the show with, a story of Rowan, and if it's nasty weather out there and you risk getting sick and you think you want to do that six-hour ride, and, but, man, it's better to just try to break it up and do two uh, swift sessions or something like that. That's that's a great application. We also talked about some of the things that I don't think two-a-days can ever replace, which is that specificity of race distance, um, the psychological aspect, aspect, the, the fueling, all of that. But certainly it can be a convenience if you can work it effectively into your program. For example, people that do commute, but you have to you can't just do the same thing every day or you're gonna get stale or you're gonna get overworked or whatever. You have to you have to think a little bit more about it. And so there are definite ways to incorporate two days in effectively. And I think at the same time there are things that it just cannot replace. But I would ask a follow up question of you, Neil. Do I have it right? Do you think that there are certain things that you just cannot replace when it comes to that one long ride? Or are there times when you're just
7: like, I I don't see the benefit all the time? Yeah, I I still do find the value in having a long ride as part of your training schedule and and things it's something that needs to be done. Now, how long that is, is again, relative to the time of year and, and what you're getting ready for. So in some cases for for somebody who's doing, you know, shorter races, a criterium, a 30, 45 minute race, a long ride, you know, three hours is, is long, relatively speaking. And you're going to get a lot of uh, appropriate training stress from that, relatively speaking. But you don't have to do whatever you, you consider that long ride relative to your training history and demands every single week. And so that's where I see for a lot of amateur riders, they kind of get stuck in a rut of Saturday is always my long ride or Sunday or whatever day it is. It's They do the same thing week in and week out most of the year round. And for me, replacing some of those sessions and, and varying things is really where we see some of those, those benefits. So changing things up in most cases is is going to provide value as long as, as long as there's a purpose to it. You know, if you just do the same thing week in and week out without ever changing, you're going to get stale. You're not going to get the adaptations that are truly possible. And so in most cases, I would say for those long rides, for a lot of amateur ride, riders, maybe you do two weeks you know, consecutively with that long ride on the weekend. That might be normal if you're working and whatnot and family. You get that long ride Saturday or Sunday, a couple weeks in a row. And then the third week, you don't do that same long ride. You maybe do a shorter intense session in the morning, do some honeydew stuff around the home, get get things done that you wouldn't have otherwise done because you'd normally be doing that long ride. And then in the afternoon, go out and do a little bit of a, a shorter endurance ride, maybe an hour and a half or two hours, and see how your body is responding and adapting to that, as well as, you know, maybe how, how much more tranquil your home life <laughs> might be. Yeah. I mean, I
0: was going to say too, there is the convenience factor, but I got to say sometimes just getting the one long ride in, it might actually be more convenient than the two rides where you're having to prep and having to shower afterwards and all that sort of stuff. So context matters and situation
7: matters. And Absolutely. Yeah. Your laundry uh, is clearly a part of that. That's your non-training stressor <laughs> in some cases. All right. Let's turn our attention now to episode
0: 175. That was entitled Lessons on Race Targeting, Goal Setting, and Mindset with Olympians Swain Tuft and Aaron Zarsidias. Trevor, both of these folks are friends of yours, it's fair to say, and they offered some great wisdom that went beyond training in this clip. Tell us more.
1: Yeah, it Just goes back to what we talked about at the beginning, which was this year, there were some things that had some big personal impacts on me that came out in our 2021 episodes. Swain and, and Aaron, like me, were coached by Hushang and Miri, and I think they are two of the more worldly experienced and smartest people I, I know. And it was just a fun episode with them because we had a theme, but really we just went all over the place and they had a lot to share. And one of my favorite stories from Swain is about that tattoo in his arm, mm-hmm. which I'm not a tattoo fan, but if I was going to get a tattoo, that'd be a pretty cool one. I just <laughs> didn't do it because... He did it he first. He already did it first. <laughs> it yeah. was He's his not a idea. Copycat. But the idea behind it was was really cool. And I think it's something that, that really plays well into sports and, and how to keep sports enjoyable and keep balance.
0: Excellent. Let's hear from Swain and Aaron now.
8: That's the risk. You just keep bypassing all these great moments in between.
1: Yeah, it's kind of a, a live in the moment and Sway, so, and I have to point this out. I've always loved that tattoo you have on your arm of uh, never be here again, which I think speaks to this.
8: It actually has, it parallels a lot of what we're talking about. I was living a life of yeah, I was just looking towards the next thing all the time and missing these beautiful moments. I think of like our life in cycling I know, Aaron is the same. Like you travel all these great places, and your mind's just on the thing, and you're you're missing out on all these great experiences. You know, I think back to our Symmetrics days uh, with a lot of the Canadian boys here. We were going down to South America on these crazy adventures, and and uh, I hit a point in my life where I was just like I realized I wasn't actually enjoying the moments. I was just thinking about the thing down the road, and. I mean, tattoos are a funny thing because you do them when you're younger and you're like, oh man, that, you know, that's so crazy or whatever. And, but it's something that still holds true to me. Like, I, I still feel that like there's so many times you're in a moment. And even if you go to the same place twice, you're never going to be that same person and that in that same zone. And I think the times when I've tried to recreate things that were awesome in my life, they're never the same. And they're never uh-huh. as good. It's because you were, it was just part of what you were experiencing at that time of your life. And you were able to soak all those things in. But I guess the point is, is like, just be receptive to that. Like each moment could be the best moment of your life. And I know for a lot of people that might hear that and be like, oh, that sounds like bullshit. No, but I know I bypassed a lot of great moments in my life just obsessing and looking at the wrong thing. I think that that is a great point from both of you. I wonder
0: if we could explore that a little bit more, because I think there's a, as with so many things, there's a balance there. You can't always be goofing around and still expect success to follow. I don't think. How would you recommend somebody balance the lightheartedness it takes to keep joy in their training and racing, but also be serious enough that they sort of fulfill their potential or live up to the expectations they, they've set for themselves?
8: I think if we could answer that
0: one.
9: <laughs> <laughs> We'd have a golden be, answer. <laughs> yeah. If individually, each person is going to be different, don't you agree? Like there is no magic answer to that. Uh, you have to listen to what's important to you and what works for you. you. There's trial and error to it as well.
0: I
8: like to ask the hard questions, guys.
9: What do you think, Swain?
8: <laughs> well, I think, again, like, yeah, there's there's no right answer and each case is different. And the the sport attracts a certain type of individual, a, a type A individual who likes to... To get serious and really obsess about things but again i think it's like so much of life and and that it's hard to convince to someone who's in that moment in their life but it's about perspective on everything and how you perceive stress and i think that's the biggest factor is if you're always perceiving everything as a stressor and like it's so hard and you're having to do so much discipline it's just it's not a fun way to go through through life. If it's just about, um, and going back to your comment too, Aaron, like it's totally true. Professionals don't have to live that way. Yeah. We have to work hard. We have to like do our training in a specific way, but it, it comes back to that perspective. How are you going about each day? And just that question you ask yourself, like you get up in the morning and you're like, how am I going to look at these things? And I remember that's how, you know, I, in grand tours, I would I would go do some yoga before each day, and spend time outside, and, and in my head, I was tr- always trying to assess how I was going to approach each day. What was my my goal for for that time? And it really helped me kind of understand what were the the real goals, not just if I was just going along with uh, everything else, like in not thinking about it. It was just having that awareness of how I want to approach each day. So it's, it's a super complex question and nothing that I have the answer for, but if I'm going to say anything, it's to sum it all up. It's just how, how do you perceive stress and what's your perspective on what your, your actual goal is out of this.
0: Playing devil's advocate here. What if taking it seriously is exactly what brings them joy? Maybe there are other things going on in their life. They just Aren't happy about, and I'm making up a scenario that may or may not be plausible. The the focus that they can bring to the sport and that seriousness is exactly what brings them joy. I, I think in that case, what w- what would you say in that case
8: to that person? I think for some people, you it, you're you're bang on. They might need that in their life, but I think you have to be careful that you're not running away from other things. And I think that's the thing that I get a little leery about when I see. I'll just speak from my own example of like grown men who have families who have jobs and they're obsessing about their bike racing in the local bike race. And they're living like a professional and they're sacrificing other aspects of their life that, you know, I think just again, my opinion are more important than their local result in the crit. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where it becomes dangerous. So you have to... It's great if it's an outlet that's actually like a benefit to your life and adding some good things to your life, some good value. But it's not healthy if it's taking away from the things that are truly important, which are your family and how you support that family.
1: Something I want to add. So Chris, you know, I started my coaching career working with younger athletes who were trying to go from the amateur to the pro ranks and and really enjoyed working with that that group. But something that I saw pretty much every single athlete deal with, and it was a career ender for, for many, was that transition from something that had been their enjoyment, their fun, their their release, to becoming really serious and becoming their job. And how hard that was on every almost every athlete then finding that balance. I, I rarely saw it be a pro when they said, now this is my, my sole focus, and I need to be really serious about it. It was much more, where do I get my enjoyment in life now? And the, the ones who couldn't find that enjoyment ended up quitting, and some of them had a lot of potential. Uh, it was the ones that could either go back to keeping, even though it was now their job, keeping cycling fun that were successful or found other things to, to enjoy.
9: That's interesting, Trevor. Yeah, I could see that happening a lot. Especially these days, with all the technology and gadgets that the young riders are are using for training, it it takes a lot away a lot of the fun. I think Swain and I have discussed this stuff before with the funding group that we work with with these young riders. Like Swain and I both started racing without all those gadgets, and we didn't have power meters at the beginning and. And those were the fun days where, you know, you just go out and you hammer and you, you go back and you're wrecked and, but you've, you know, kicked the crap out of your friends and your training partners and eaten some candy. And now you go home and you sleep. And I think today's generation probably does have a lot of a harder time finding the enjoyment with all those numbers. And it would be a balance of, you know, maybe letting the computers go once a week and just going out and having fun with your friends. And remembering those times of just like hammering the hammering the roads and and having fun on it, right? And getting back to the basics of of just bike riding.
10: All
0: right, now let's jump over to a clip from episode one seventy nine. Do you need a mentor? And this happened to be recorded with Coach Connor's mentor, Glenn Swan. Trevor, tell us a little bit about what we're going to hear. I know it involves this this. Uh, Infamous, famous? What? Which one is it? For Tuesday night race up in uh, Ithaca area.
1: Yeah, and I gotta say the the order we put these episodes in, I'm I'm starting to feel like we've turned this uh, summary episode <laughs> to a personal therapy session for me. <laughs> We're going through uh, you know my my life history here. So I apologize, to everybody listening, about that. But uh, no, this is fun. So this is my original mentor, Glenn Swan. And we had this in Ithaca, New York, a Tuesday night race, which is still some of the most fun I've ever had in my life. But it played a big role for me, for a lot of people into turning them into racers because of the mindset, because of how we approached it. It wasn't just a show up, sit in the field and go for the sprint at the end. There was a whole way that we had to race it.
0: Mm -hmm. Racers make the race, right? Yep.
1: Excellent. Well, let's hear more from Glenn now. I would say, Glenn, to me, and and I'm glad we have you for this episode, you are just representative of of what a mentor is. So Glenn has a bike shop that he runs out of his house. And when I was learning to ride, it's a shop I went to. And and you learn very quickly, you didn't just go up there to buy something and leave. If you walked in there, there was a good chance they were going to serve you dinner and keep you around (laughs) for an hour. And you'd go up there and you'd talk cycling. And Glenn would tell you things, tell you stories, explain things to you. You'd, you'd talk about the previous nice race and he would give you pointers and advice. So you were kind of going up there and almost getting a class. Glenn also has a couple miles of trails on his property that people come up and ride and ski in the winter. And you set up the Tuesday, Thursday. So we had a Tuesday night race and a Thursday time trial. And there were unspoken rules that you set about how these were raced.
11: The fundamental point of our Tuesday night races in particular was to race hard, to earn the respect of your peers by the way you raced. We really didn't give a damn about who won the race on any given week. If you sucked wheel all day and won a sprint, you didn't really earn anybody's respect or friendship. (laughs) But if you ripped everybody's arms and legs off all night long, you made the race for everybody else. So we were racing for the respect of our peers. And we also had an incredible group of guys. I I wish I could take credit for the Tuesday night race reputation for producing a lot of great racers. But there were a number of guys who were willing to, uh, you know, we spent the first month in the springtime doing coaching rides as opposed to getting right out there and racing. So we were teaching people how to ride in pace lines. We were teaching them how to be alert to what's going on in the the overall pack. We were teaching people how to think in races and how to ride safely and how to support each other. We don't have as much of that with the current crop of Tuesday night guys, but this is one old guy who's uh, saying, gee, my era was the golden era. But for everybody, I'm sure their era is the golden era, but... Bottom line was, there were a bunch of guys that set a very good tone and were emphasizing that a race should be better because you were part of it and not that we were out there because each one of us wanted to win every race.
1: There was certainly a tone, and and Glenn, Glenn said to me, this is one of the biggest compliments he ever received. He was at a race in New England. And a race organizer official came up to you and said, you can always tell the Ithaca riders.
11: Yeah, they raced in, in a, a way that was actually noticeably different. We made races happen.
0: It makes me want to know a little bit more about why you had this attitude and, and maybe that has to do with a mentor you had in your life.
11: Well, there was a very influential article. I still have the original copy of it in my desk at home. It was from the New York Times. And uh, I'm forgetting the name of the the running doctor. But it was back in the era of, uh, well, my housemate Jack Fultz and uh, Bill Rogers and all. Play is where life lives, where the game is the game. And that it was recognizing that when we are in a race, when we are in a game... The world melts away and the game is everything. You play as hard as you can and you try as hard as you can to win or to to do what, what your goal is. But when the game is over, everybody rejoices in the game that took place. Whether you won or lost didn't really matter. It was just that you played as hard as you could. The world was just the game for that period of time. And then we got back to the real world. And that very much influenced me.
0: All right. And finally, what would a best of 2021 episode be without a little Dr. Seiler? We've got a clip here from episode 185, comparing training methods across endurance sports with Dr. Steven Seiler. Trevor, we're pulling a clip where we actually make fun of you a little bit for your um, lack of ability to pronounce a certain word. Can you believe that I pulled
1: this clip? Exactly. I figured... Like when we were, we were picking these, I'm like, oh, Chris is going to grab this one. Of course, it's a whole five minutes of making fun of me. <laughs> well, it's not, it's not just
0: making fun of you. And we move past it and there's some, uh, there's some fun in here and some learning to do in this clip about, I'm not even going to say it. I'm going to wait. I'm not even going to give Are the you word away. Are you going
1: to try to get me to say it? No. To see if I can remember. <laughs> do you know? He gave us a little. Uh, let me give me, let me give a try. Symorphosis? That's it. Wow. I can actually do this now. Yeah. Certainly, yeah, I got made fun of, but it is a concept that I absolutely love because it just shows some of the beauty of, of our physiology that we just don't overbuild anything. So yeah, it, there's probably some good making fun of me in here, but there's also some good points.
0: Absolutely. As always, honestly, with Dr. Seiler,
1: here he is. So getting back to comparing the training in these different sports, it's it's you've definitely demonstrated that they all polarize. But it does seem there is one thing that is very different is how volume is added. And and that seems to be where cycling is a bit of a unique sport because all the other sports do it by frequency of workouts.
10: Yeah, or or you might say what happens is it's almost like uh, cellular proliferation. First, the cells get bigger and then they split. Uh, (laughs) So first, the workouts get longer. But then they reach some some critical length, and then they start splitting up and say, well, now I'm going to start doing two workouts. So and, and for runners, that's probably, you know, somewhere between 60 and 80 minutes. They'll or maybe 90, but they're not going to do two hour easy runs. That's a once a week kind of thing. And the same with rowing. You don't see too many rowers doing two hour rows. They're doing 80 minute rows, 60 minute rows, but they're doing two of them or two times 85, 90 minutes. So they're getting three hours of work, but the younger athletes will do once a day. And then as they get older, we're going to, we're lengthening their workouts. They're going from eight kilometers to 10 to 12 to 14. And then we reach some point where we say, all right, you've reached the point where I think we're going to do two workouts a week or two days a week. You're going to do doubles. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. So, so that's, that's the transition. It's a first lengthen, 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 and then split cycling doesn't do the split it just gets longer, 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 you know, <laughs> but I think we're seeing some of that split now.
1: Do you think that's a good thing? Do you think that this is uh, something other sports have figured out that cycling's <laughs> behind the, a little behind on? Uh,
10: maybe, maybe. I mean, I, I do think it's a bit, a bit of a uh, Winnie the Pooh, both <laughs> wanting to have my cake and eat it too, that probably there is utility in both. We're actually, I'm, I'm, Gearing up, I've got a application in the European Union for a big study looking at precisely this, comparing uh, long four hour rides with two times two hour, and actually doing doing a three hour a three week intervention and trying to see if we can. Tease apart stress responses and adaptive responses to the two different approaches. You know, it's going to be it's a tough study to achieve to find enough cyclists that can will and are are willing to do this kind of thing. But I think that's where we've got to go. We've got to look at not only the adaptations, but also the stress responses and, and see how the balance is being shifted by these two approaches and the literature there's there's hints in both directions that yeah like you i know you're a fan of the long sessions i've I've listened to the podcast about this the the long versus two times short and i think it was really good and it goes into those weeds and and the the pluses and minuses of the two because the longer sessions you in that workout you generate you amplify some adaptive signals probably with glycogen depletion and so forth. Whereas with the two times two type scenario, you you create maybe a longer window of responsiveness. So boy, the jury's out. I don't think there's a clear answer and probably we're not going to end up even with some more research, we're probably not going to end up saying, nope, cyclists have just been stupid. You know, it was two times two all along. You know, it was doubles all along. It, I don't think that's what we'll find. We'll find that probably the judicious use of both is a good way to go. Meaning some, you know, the cyclist is gonna need some need some long rides when they race long.
1: Chris has given me this look of the jury's still out on cyclists, but Trevor, you've definitely been stupid.
10: (laughs) (laughs) Well No, I I'm gonna be honest with you guys. And again, I'm the sports scientist. I make a living trying to pretend like I'm supposed to be really smart on this stuff, but good grief. Coaches and athletes have been experimenting on this for decades. So I don't think they're stupid. They, I don't think they've missed out and just thought, well, uh, we never thought of two times two, you know, we never thought of doing doubles. Of course they have, you know? So, you know, we just have to accept that one of the big issues is that cycling does have some long races and a lot of saddle time. And so part of that is you got to prepare for that. But I do think that in a modern, you know, with what we're seeing and with more cross communication, between the different uh, sports and that, that we're seeing some fertilization, some new ideas, and we're seeing some of our, our best cyclists that are saying, hey, you know what? I can do doubles. This, is, this can be a good approach. And especially with the advent of these virtual methodologies where it makes it less boring. You know, there's a lot of different things that are coming together, right? And so I think that's why we're starting to see more, a little bit more flexibility up in the heads of of uh, some of our our cyclists. So that's a good thing, I, I, you know. But I, I don't think we're going to, in five years, come. I'll be able to come back to you and say, well, we have the answer. It's complex, and the the degree of overlapping, the degree of individualization, the degree of interaction with nutrition and genetics and so forth is going to be so significant that it, I don't think we'll see a black and white deal it'll be uh, it'll be gray that was another episode of fast talk subscribe to fast talk
0: wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts and be sure to leave us a rating and a review the thoughts and opinions expressed on fast talk are those of the individual as always we love your feedback so join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com slash join and become a part of our education and coaching community. For Dr. Oscar Yukindrup, Kristen Armstrong, Jim Miller, Dr. Simon Marshall and Leslie Patterson, Jeff Winkler, Neil Henderson, Swain Tuft, Aaron Zarsadias, Glenn Swan, Dr. Stephen Seiler, and Trevor Connor. I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.